The Vol 60 is brought to you by GameTime, your new go-to app for the best deals on last-minute tickets. Did you know NHL tickets prices tend to drop right before the game starts? GameTime tracks prices in real time from thousands of trusted sellers. Thousands! Then shows you all the best last-minute deals with prices up to 60% off. 60% off. Like, why is anybody paying full price? More than 12 million fans have downloaded the GameTime app and discovered the fastest, easiest way to get into the game. The best deal right now on Game Time, in my opinion, it's not a hockey game. They, they do everything. They do concerts. They do football, basketball, whatever you're like. Right now, I can get tickets to watch the Michigan State Spartans play the Fighting Illini for eight bucks. Eight bucks. Like when I was a student at Michigan State, it was $10 a ticket. So it's now cheaper, thanks to Game Time, to go see the Spartans. And also the fact that Michigan State hasn't been particularly good this year. I think that may be a factor. But it's cheaper than when I was a student to go watch the Spartans play. And so I actually may do this. $8 on game time to go watch Michigan State play Illinois on Saturday or whenever that game is. It's the ninth. So yeah, go get the game time app. You check out in two taps. You're, you're just banging this out. Two taps, like not three, not five, two taps. And you got your tickets, your $8 Michigan State Spartans football tickets. You can't beat that. So head to the App Store or Play Store now to download Game Time and score awesome deals on last-minute tickets. Hey, this is Craig, and I am really excited to share with you a concept that we are now currently putting into play. Uh, Corey Promen and Scott Wheeler are our two prospect writers at The Athletic. They don't have a podcast, but they are both very super interesting. And anytime I have Corey Promen on the full 60, you guys seem to really like it. The numbers are really strong. They tend to be uh, amongst the most um, listened to episodes. And so we had the idea of adding on bonus prospect podcasts as part of the full 60 a prospect series where we feature Scott Wheeler or Corey Promen alternating once a month. Now it won't be in place of the regular uh, full length, full 60 interviews that run every Thursday, but just a bonus episode that we're going to run once a month early in the week, typically around a piece one or the other is doing. And Scott Wheeler is going to lead us off because he just published his first top 62 look at the 2020 NHL draft. And um, it, it's it's fascinating because in the past, this was something that most hockey fans weren't paying too much attention to until the draft got closer. And that, as Scott and I talk about it, has completely changed. And people are into prospect coverage year round. And I, I, you know, this is more of a fandom thing for me. I love the stuff. I'm not watching these guys every day. It's, it's, you know, enough to watch the NHL, but I love talking to Corey and Scott about it. And you guys seem to like it. So, we're going to have Scott on here. He is the first guest of this Prospect Series portion of the Full 60, and I'm excited. So let's just jump right in and have this conversation with Scott Wheeler. All right, I'm joined by Scott Wheeler here in what is to be a monthly bonus episode of the Full 60, and we'll explain that a little bit. Not always Scott Wheeler, but always Prospect Talks. Scott, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing all right. I'm excited about this because... I mean, I, I feel like you could probably have your own show, but selfishly, I'm excited that I can I can get your perspective on prospect stuff because I love this stuff. Like, I'm a complete draft nerd when it comes to this stuff. So I am excited about you and Corey joining the pod once a month to do this. Yeah, it, it's funny how the prospect beat has kind of evolved over the last few years, too. I mean, it, it, it is now at the point where there seems to be an appetite no matter whose team you're cheering for. It, it, when I first started doing prospects a few years ago, it was certainly beginning to trend that way, but it was still very much the bottom five, bottom ten teams that were interested. And now I think there's this massive interest from just about everyone, even even teams that don't have a first-round pick in the last few years. Those fan bases have been sort of... Uh, craving, if you will, that that sort of, oh, who, who's available in the second round? Who's available right. deeper in the draft? Sleepers. It just seems to be this massive world now. So it should be it should be good to sort of dig into it a little bit deeper in a podcast format. So it's funny because when I was at ESPN, there was, like we had a, the, the data suggested um, people didn't care about prospect stuff until they were affiliated with their team, typically, outside mm-hmm. of like the weeks leading up to the draft. But like in November, it would be like, 
you know, you can write about a guy who was the first round pick. You can write about Cole Caulfield because Montreal fans will read it, but don't write about, you know, uh, who, Jamie Drysdale. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> because he's not affiliated. Nobody knows who he is. I, I'm, and that has completely changed, as you mentioned. We've seen at the Athletic the numbers go up, and I don't know. Maybe this is just a different audience, or why do you think, or or people are just more aware of these players? Why do you think there has been this increase of interest in these players at this point? Well, I think first and foremost, it's the the recognition from everyone, fans, teams, media that players are now entering the league younger than they ever have been before. You don't have to wait until a guy's 22, 23 years old, especially the players at the top of the draft. I mean, you still have the Mike Babcocks of the world and and that sort of old-fashioned Detroit model that they built for a long time where it was, we're going to make everybody sort of so ripe that, that we're absolutely certain that they're capable of sticking once they land. And certainly there are still teams that take that approach, but I think by and large we're beginning to see younger and younger players break into the league. We've got players like Andrei Svechnikov leading the way as a 19-year-old with Carolina this year. Alex Dabrinkat did the same last year with the Blackhawks. And I think there's just a recognition now that the league's getting younger and we have to, as fans or media or, or evaluators, whoever, we have to get a pulse on these kids maybe a little bit earlier than we used to. It's funny. I was in Pittsburgh doing something on Sidney Crosby and I, I was trying to get him to maybe push back but I'm like you know Sid when you hear it's a young players game now like that's all we talk about is the young players mm-hmm. and the youth and meanwhile Sid's still the best player in the game I'm like do you you know what what do you think of that and he's just like no it's true like there's no he's like there's no denying it it's that it's you know he's he happens to survive because he's Sidney Crosby but he's like this you know to to deny it is foolish like this is where the league's at right now Definitely. And I think that's why people were surprised by something like the Roman Yossi contract last week, where sure, he's a he's a star player, but I think fans and everybody kind of recognizes now that those kinds of contracts, the late 20s, the John Tavares contracts, the Roman Yossi contracts, tend to really burn teams late in their deals. And people want that investment in younger players. I mean, we've seen the way that RFA contracts have skewed in the last few years, that the whole landscape seems to be changing to skew towards younger players. And I mean, you would know this better than me, but I wonder whether that's something that the that the owners will try to address in the next CBA to tinker with it or or sort of prolong the the their opportunity to get players on more affordable contracts. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the solution is. It certainly seems like the Mitch Marners of the world have, have really tilted that landscape. And I think the draft, these kids now are so talented. I think a lot of that is still lost a little bit. There are players coming out of the draft who could absolutely forego going to college or uh, going the junior hockey route in the year after their draft. And, and they, many of them still do go there for a year and we still get the one and dones in NCAA, but there are definitely more kids now than ever before that, that could make that jump. I have no doubt that if Cole Caulfield had have played with the Montreal Canadiens this year, that he would have been a serviceable scorer for them and would have helped their power play, right? So uh, sometimes it's just a matter of what you think is best for these kids, but it's definitely skewing that way, and I don't think it's going to change anytime soon. And, and eventually contracts, and particularly for those older players, those 30-year-old, 29-year-old players that are signing these eight-year deals, I think that will catch up to... The sort of where we're at now as well. So one a story, not to get completely off track five seconds into our first pro- prospect <laughs> podcast and not talk prospects, but a story that I've been kicking around and talking to people about is the notion, because you can do it in baseball, of of signing these guys younger. And for whatever reason, hockey has this rule. And nobody, I haven't found anyone that's really taking credit for this. So if you're listening to this and you were behind this rule, let me know. But like this notion that you can't sign a guy until he's a year out from right. his expiring contract, I think is, I think is something that the league should look at and the PA because if if you're Montreal right now, what if you're just like you know, let's see if Cole Caulfield will bite on a six year deal worth whatever. You know what I mean? We like what we're seeing already. We can get him young and cheap. And if you're the player, you want that flexibility. Maybe you want that cost certainty or you want to know what you're going to make. So like, I think that that could be a fix to some of the contract issues we've seen. Yeah, and that would certainly leave itself open to major home runs and major mistakes. And I think maybe that's yeah, sure. why why NHL general managers who are very much more risk-averse than general managers in the other major sports tend to steer clear of that because they want that certainty and nobody wants the big mistake, the Milan Lucic on their resume. Um, 
but yeah, I, I mean, it, it would certainly allow for differentiation between good general managers and bad general managers to to sort of win out on those kinds of contracts and uh, take more gambles and, and sort of bet on some of these younger players a little bit earlier. I think there's a huge opportunity there for general managers to, to sort of take advantage of that. And, and certainly for players, uh, potentially kids who have injury histories or that kind of thing to get a little bit more certainty rather than sort of playing out their ELC and, and waiting for someone to bite or, or waiting for that big moment. So, right. uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I absolutely see it going that way. I just think NHL general managers are historically very risk, risk averse and for sure. maybe that's what's keeping them from taking that kind of a plunge. Mm. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to put that back on the front burner. I, that's just a, been a pet project okay so the reason we're talking today and we're going to turn this podcast fairly quickly is your preliminary rankings for the 2020 nhl draft you did a top 62 this is the first time you've gotten to 62 right for the 2020 draft i know you did Mm -hmm. 31 and that maybe it was the summer yep um so this is an early look at the 2020 draft top 62 before we get into some specific names i want a couple of impressions and one just I think if fans are listening in or tuning in for the first time and really looking at this draft what is the consensus of this draft in terms of its strength oh I think the consensus tends to be that it's a strong draft it's not an exceptional draft but there have definitely been some drafts in recent memory that have really kind of fallen flat I mean the Nico Hishi Nolan Patrick draft comes to mind. Even the the, the sort of Rasmus Dalin Andre Svechnikov draft wasn't the strongest in the world. Um, so this is this is certainly stronger than those two, at least in my opinion. Obviously, 2015 in the last kind of decade stands above the rest of the pack. But I think this draft, uh, at least very early on in my evaluation of it, I think has a chance to be sort of a, a one of the four or five better drafts of the last decade. Uh, and, and I think that's saying a lot, considering that there isn't a really, truly transformational talent. There isn't a, a Connor McDavid. There isn't even an Austin Matthews. As good as some of these guys are, they're, they're, the draft, this draft class is defined by its depth. I think it runs pretty deep, not just at the top sort of 10, 12, 15 players, but also then into the sort of early second round, into the 40s and the 50s. You're still going to have some really quality players available. And then you've got a goalie prospect in this draft that we haven't had in, in a few years. So there are a few things that kind of make this draft unique. But if for a draft that doesn't have a McDavid or an Austin Matthews type of talent where you can say that guy's going to contend for a Rocket Richard or that guy's going to contend for the Art Ross, it's an extremely strong draft. I think we would look at this 2017 draft differently if we started calling it like the Pedersen McCarr. <laughs> Absolutely. <Heiskins>. Absolutely <laughs> we draft. would. Like we could, we could, let's just, you know, not, I mean, there's some good players. I'm not, it's not a knock, but like that's, I mean, there was, you're still going to find good players. And so, so this is a depth draft to me. And, and again, this is not my area of expertise. I'm more of just a, you know, I just like to, to read what you and Corey are putting out. But to me, what is interesting, and you can dive into this a little further, is that it seems like it's winger heavy. And mm-hmm. if I'm, if I'm a team that's, Let's say I'm the Detroit Red Wings and the Ottawa Senators. Like you, you get to the top of the draft, I don't think you're you're dying to to build around a winger, right? Like you, this is where you're hoping to get your franchise centerman. It, like how concerning should that be? Is that an accurate kind of representation of the top of the draft? I think absolutely it is. It's not only a winger heavy draft, but it's also a D deficient draft, and I think both of those things mm. will create a ton of uncertainty on draft day. So, whatever consensus people believe that they have heading in, I think in last year the same way that we saw with players like Soderstrom and Moritz Sider and Philip Broberg where teams kind of reached on them a little bit more than many people expected just because there was such a lack of defensemen available. I think you could see the same this year with some of the notable centers in terms of Maybe a team has its heart set on on getting that guy down the middle. And and likewise with some of the defensemen, I think there are defensemen ranked in the back end of my first round here who will definitely be, by the end of the year, sort of higher on some teams' boards and in that sort of 10 to 15 range. And you never have a draft where, for example, one defenseman goes in the top 15 like I currently have it playing out. That just won't happen. There there will be three or four defensemen taken in that range. So... 
that will create a lot of uncertainty. And and then I, I think you're absolutely right in talking about some of the some of the wingers in that even some of the centers in the draft, a player like Marco Rossi, who I love and who I think can be an NHL center just because he's so strong defensively, at five foot nine, there's going to be a lot of teams that look at him and say, as talented as he is, as good as he is defensively, he may be a winger for us at the NHL level. So then you're really depleting your available center depth and, and it really makes a player like Quinton Byfield that much more exciting because outside of him and then on defense outside of Jamie Drysdale there there seems to be a huge drop off at both of those positions despite it being a really strong draft so because of this do you think there'll be this always happens right where there there's a clear cut number 1 it seems in November and then we're going you know a guy mm-hmm. maybe has an off week or doesn't look good in the world junior or something and all of a sudden you're going to say oh Quentin Byfield you know this teams want the big centerman how how close is one versus two? Let's let's start at the top of this thing. Well, it's been interesting to see that narrative play out this year because there was a lot of talk heading into the year about how Lafreniere wasn't the clear-cut number one and there were four or five guys right on his heel and the strength of this draft was okay. that there was a number of players that could, could kind of usurp Alexi Lafreniere as the top prospect. And I'm not sure that I, I subscribe to that. I think that... Lafreniere is still the clear-cut best player for me. Obviously, he's injured right now, and we don't know the severity of that injured, and he's just been pulled from the Canada-Russia series, so that may put a little bit of a wrinkle in to his season if it's a bit of a longer-term injury, and he's not a center, and he's on the older side of the draft. So there are concerns about him. He's also not a, a sort of brilliant skater. But I think everything else that he offers in terms of his vision and his playmaking ability and his ability to finish and how strong he is on the puck and how physical he is along the wall... All of those things are going to make him a very, very high-end winger, a first-line winger in the NHL. And I think ultimately there's a lot of certainty in him as a prospect that there may not be in some of the other players. A player like Lucas Raymond, there's a little bit more risk in. A player like Quentin Byfield, I think because he's so much bigger than kids his age, dominates in part at least because of his size still. And that will be a bit of a transition once he's playing against guys who are also six foot three, six foot four, and two hundred plus pounds once he makes the jump. So. There is uncertainty about a lot of the players at the top of the draft, as good as they are, and I just don't think you have that with Lafreniere, which kind of makes him still the clear-cut number one for me. I just don't see any real scenario, barring injury, where he doesn't become a first-line winger. My only um, my pushback would be, so I, I remember talking to a GM, and he said, look, I feel like I'm constantly trying to find a top, a number one D, specifically right shot, or a mm-hmm. centerman, and you can always find. It seems like you can, you know, you can pick up a winger via trade or in free agency. So I just wonder, and, and maybe we we even saw it last year with how that draft played out with the defenseman going higher, and and we've seen some centers kind of go higher than than we expected. If that if we're going to see that shake out, like this, I think this draft could be a fascinating thing. Where if you're like the, the nine of the top ten players are clearly on the wing and. Mm-hmm. You and I both know it's probably going to be, go, you know, five or six on the wing, and someone's going to go after the centers and defensemen. And and I, if I'm a GM, that's what I'm doing. By the way, I'm like I'm like these wingers may be sure things, but I, I it's so hard to get a find a center or a defenseman that that's what I'm drafting at the top. Yeah, and and I think that's a fair argument to to make. I I do think that some teams have traditionally run into trouble doing that. I think okay. quite honestly that that a team like Detroit may look back and even if Moritz Sider becomes a, a sort of number two defenseman or a very good second pairing defenseman who can play in all situations that they're going to look back and look at say a, a Cole Caulfield or any mm-hmm. one of those number of sort of four or five extremely talented forwards that they passed up and say, holy shit, we made a mistake. And I think teams are doing that with a kid like Alex Debrinket, where they looked at the winger and they may have taken the defenseman who was available or taken the center who was available or taken a kid who had two more inches on on his height at the combine. And and that's how mistakes happen. So I think you, you have to ultimately find centers and defensemen in the draft. And the best way to find top of the lineup players is in that sort of top 10 range at the draft uh, and obviously those players aren't available because players still aren't really hitting free agency at least not the truly elite players um players like john Tavares have been a- exceptions to that rule 
so yeah, it, it maybe Quentin Byfield puts a wrinkle in that if he continues to produce like he has, where it's just impossible to ignore this six foot four center who has a chance to be a point per game player in the NHL. I mean, those players are few and far between. And if you're the Ottawa Senators and you're picking first overall in, in Montreal in June, maybe that's an extremely tempting route to go down mm. if you have the first overall pick. So uh, there are certainly organizations that I could see going that route, especially an organization like Ottawa, where you've already got players on the wing, you've got a Kachuk, you've got a top defenseman, and maybe Quinton Byfield just becomes the player that you can't pass up. All right, let's stay at the top of this draft or your rankings and and Lafreniere, how he compares to the other number one picks. I think people like to have do that exercise too. So and that and that's another way of looking at the strength of a draft. But you know, Jack Hughes goes number one last year. Is you know how does he stack up to a Jack Hughes? You already said he's not in the McDavid Matthews. Like where is he over the realm of the last five years of the number one overall picks? I think he's kind of in that tier right below those guys. I think he's certainly ahead of the Nolan Patricks and the Nico Hichies, and uh, I would put him slightly ahead of where Jack Hughes was, but I think he's maybe a cut below below a player like a Matthews or potentially even a player like Jack Eichel. Um, obviously, Jack Eichel would have probably been a first overall pick in a, in a number of recent drafts. Um, so I think he's kind of in that that middle tier there. Um, that isn't to say that he can't break into it. I think, again, part of it comes back to the fact that he's not a center, and that isn't to say that Lafreniere couldn't have played center if he was developed there. He absolutely could have, but the, just the fact that he's on the wing now, that that's not a move that any team is going to make. Um, so he's he's an interesting one because he doesn't have the flash of a lot of the sort of top-end prospects that we now see. He's very much like Nolan Patrick in the sense that there's no one quality that really leaps out at you. He doesn't have the speed of a Jack Hughes. He doesn't have the creativity of a Jack Hughes. He doesn't have the shot of an Austin Matthews. Um, there just isn't that really dynamic quality when you're watching him play where you see that flash in his game and that wow factor and you come away from a game thinking, oh my God, that kid's going to be a superstar. He's just one of those kids who kind of has all of the pieces put together and um, that isn't to say he's going to end up like Nolan Patrick, who is probably a 40, 50 point player at his ceiling at this point, maybe a 55, 60 point guy. I think he's going to be more than that, but uh, it's more of the sum of his parts than any one skill. It's the sum of his playmaking and his ability to finish in tight and how strong he is on the puck. I think that might be his biggest skill, but it's not one that leaps out at you when a kid is really good at the cycle. That's not exactly what you're looking at uh, <laughs> right. out of a first overall pick, but I think that's what Lafreniere is. He's just good at everything. There's no real flaws in his game. Some people have been a little bit critical of his skating, but I think that's been overstated and He's just a well-rounded, complete offensive player who can kind of make plays as a playmaker, but also finish and play along the wall or play off the rush. He just kind of does it all. But he certainly doesn't have the dynamic quality that a Jack Hughes had last year in terms of that skating that you see in that pull-away speed or that creativity to make a pass that nobody sees coming. Yeah. So you you alluded to in your piece... Um... I mean the concerns you, you you mentioned the skating the other the other one is the age like how mm -hmm. how how does that much does that factor into this for me it actually tends to factor in a lot I think age is extremely important in evaluating these kids I think part of the reason that a lot of people slept on a player like say a, a Nick Robertson who has exploded to start the year in the OHL this year last year was because they didn't properly consider that Nick Robertson was a year younger than many of the other players in his draft. I think the same was true of Adam Boquist in his draft year, where Boquist was nearly a full year younger. And I think that is also true of some of the older players. Lafreniere is, is certainly fits into that group. Marco Rossi is another kid who is uh, was nearly eligible by a couple of days to be in last year's draft. And I think you have to consider that. You have to be cognizant of how quickly these kids are developing. These kids just from the start of the year to the end of the year, they can make huge strides, like just gigantic strides in terms of their development. And that's why it's so important to watch them regularly and to keep close tabs on them because things do change so rapidly for them. So you certainly have to consider that Lafreniere is older by whether it's three months or six months or 11 months than some of these kids. But 
even in looking at what he did last year and what he did the year before that and taking those seasons into consideration, he was still an elite player in the league last year, one of the best players in junior hockey last season. And in that context, even if he had that kind of a draft year last year in this draft, he would still be one of the top two or three players. So um, it's not a huge concern for me with Lafreniere, but it's definitely something that I value uh, pretty seriously in a lot of the kids in this draft and in every draft. So just for reference, he turned 18 on October 11th. Um, So that's, I mean, yeah, so that's fairly significant. I I would say the flip side is, you know, it's hard enough drafting 18-year-olds. At least you're, you're seeing, you know, more of him. Yep. you know, as he matures, right? Like, I think it removes some of the risk. Yeah, you've got a larger sample size to work yeah. from in terms of how long he's been playing in junior hockey. And on the flip side, maybe it makes him a little bit closer to cracking your NHL roster next year. Maybe if you're the Ottawa Senators and or the Detroit Red Wings or the LA Kings and you end up landing him and you have more confidence putting him directly into a sort of leading role in your lineup rather than easing him into it just because he is nine, ten months older than, than someone like a Quinton Byfield. So you mentioned those three teams and pulling up the standings as we talk. Um, I mean, we, the Red Wings and the Senators have long been the, the assumed top contenders, let's say, for this spot. Of those teams at the bottom of the standings, which one do you think most need him, in your opinion, in terms of fit? Oof, uh, I think in terms of the foundation that's already been established in Ottawa and LA, that I, I would probably give those teams an edge in terms of where they're at relative to a team um, like the Red Wings. I think the Red Wings just need another, more than those two teams in particular, need another star. I mean, the, the yeah. Kings have that coming in a player like Alex Turcotte. And I think the fact that Philip Zadina, as good as he might still become, hasn't become the star that many people thought he would or or isn't projecting to be a kind of point-per-game player anymore mm-hmm. has just meant that that the Red Wings need more than Dylan Larkin. They need more than him and Mantha to, to really take that next step. So I think in terms of, if you're looking at, at, at the need for a top-end forward, certainly Ottawa also needs that, but I think Ottawa has a depth in their prospect pool that a team like the Red Wings don't have. I really like players... Uh, a number of the players that are there in in Ottawa and developing in that system. So uh, I would probably maybe give the slight edge in terms of pure need to a team like the Red Wings. I just think that they truly do need more guys up front. They just need to have another sort of top of the lineup, truly dynamic, all-star level talent. And I think whether it's Lafreniere or Byfield, that you're probably getting that. They're interesting because let's say they do get the number one pick and it's Lafreniere. Now all of a sudden, you've your rebuild. You know, you, you've it's going on. Let's say four or five years, and you're coming out of it. Your best players may end up being Anthony Mantha, Lafreniere, and Zadina. Again, we're building down the wing. You know what I mean? Like that's concerning yep. to me. Like you, you want it to be those centers and defensemen, and maybe it's Cider still, but and of course Larkin's better than I think people expected, but. I, like that's problematic that to me, just a complete yeah yeah, side. and I agree and and you've got Heronic, you've got cider there there is depth coming in terms of the the d side of it, but yeah you you would you would look at that lineup and think this is a major issue for us if if we're weaning on Mantha and Lafreniere as our go to guys because ultimately championships are won down the middle, and I yeah. think that's increasingly becoming true. So maybe the, maybe they're another team where if they end up with the first overall pick, Byfield puts a real wrinkle in that. So I don't know. I think this draft is going to be live in in a, in a way that previous drafts weren't. There, hmm. there was a sort of manufactured sense last year that Capo Caco may be the, the pick for the Devils, and I think it was Jack Hughes all along. And yeah. while I think that that's true of Lafreniere, maybe the position that he plays – creates a wrinkle that wasn't created last year if Kako were a center or if Hughes had have been a winger. So, um, yeah, it, Byfield, and especially with the start he has had where he's just been this unstoppable force and I think even better than everybody expected him to be, maybe he climbs himself into that conversation. It, it's definitely early. All right, knowing that, <laughs> that heavy seat any of these kids play, I'm going to make the prediction that Byfield goes number one. That's gonna okay. be my. Um, we're 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 on, we're on the record now. That's that's gonna be my, based on <laughs> nothing other than what I would do if I was picking first, and that and they were that close, and I could get a big centerman for my team. The and the beauty of of this year, 
the way the season's playing out, like there could just be uh, an odd like San Jose just has an off year, and all of a sudden they're they're the mm-hmm. ones. And then now if it's them, then they can plug the best winger in because there's you know they they've got center depth, and just take the best available player. And wouldn't that be? Something? Yeah, the standings have certainly not shaped up how I think anybody expected them to in terms of the Anaheims of the world and the Vancouver's of the world having more success than I think people expected. And certainly Buffalo and Edmonton fit into that mold as well. So maybe you have a team that's been great for the last four or five years that, that slips, or maybe you have a team like Chicago that ends up back there and ends up adding another piece to, to Kirby doc and, and Debrinkad and Strom. And, and then suddenly they're sort of back in that contending mold within two or three years. I think there's, there's a lot of teams. I mean, certainly the three teams that everybody expected to be at the bottom of the standings, I think, will remain there in in L.A., Detroit, and Ottawa. But the rest of it, I think, could be really interesting. All right, let's pan out a bit. Who? So, looking at your top ten, and I'm not. And again, go to the Athletic. You can see Scott's work. It's it's great. It's his top sixty two prospects. Who out of the top ten in in your list are you most curious to track here this season? Like, really excited about. Tim Stoitzel is probably the player who has grabbed my attention the most. Uh, quite frankly, coming into the year, I, I didn't see him as a player who was going to be a kind of contender for fifth, sixth, seventh overall. And I think he has now established himself in that conversation. He's obviously, uh, for those who don't know, Stoitzel's uh, playing in the DEL with Adler Mannheim this year and has been a point per game player out of the gate through what is now a pretty substantial. Uh, sample size. I mean, we're more than a dozen games into their season here. So uh, he has been truly excellent. And, and by truly excellent, I mean, in a, in a league where you've got Calder Cup, former Calder Cup champions and a, a slew of former NHL players who were 40, 50 point guys, like the DEL has, has become a legitimate destination for players who have left the AHL or, or left the NHL. There are some quality talents there uh, and he's been one of the better players in the league. He's been one of the more electric players in the league. And for a kid who was born and bred and developed in Germany, that is just extremely rare. And obviously, Sider mm. fit into that mold as well. But I, I think the DEL increasingly is becoming a destination for these kids. Maybe kids from these sort of third-tier hockey countries don't have to go to Sweden or Russia to, or Finland in search of their development and the DEL can become a, a real destination for them and just watching Stoitzel play and how dynamic he is with the puck and the fact that he's is, is sort of electric as a scorer but can also make plays as a passer he's one of those wingers who I, I think teams are going to have a really hard time passing up on and he has also grown two inches in the last six months he was 5'10 last year and he's now six foot and his progression has just been so steep and so fast that I think he's going to make a lot of waves heading into the draft and could be one of those players who ends up a lot like Cider did, uh, just going much higher than people expected at the beginning of the year. I, I, I Maybe I'm looking at this wrong. I'm not seeing any Americans in your top 10, Scott, so clearly you made a mistake somewhere along the way. <laughs> Yeah, and and again, that speaks to how cyclical the draft is, too. I mean, last year's draft was a historically great NTDP program, and now you've got a draft where I had one kid and one kid who I'm very hesitant on in Antonio Stranges, who was was the only American in my top 31. And and there are some (laughs) other Americans that I quite like. I like Ty Spilancic, and I like Thomas Bordolo, and I like Alex Lafriere, and Jake Sanderson's a decent defender, but there really isn't anyone who I consider having even a remote chance of being in my top 15 by the end of the year. So that, that kind of that's crazy, how by the way. It is like, for, that's nuts. For, like, the yeah. Americans dominated the top of the draft last year. Should have probably gone better than it did, even, I would argue. And Absolutely. Now we can't even get one in the first round here. Yeah, and and I think you will ultimately that the program gets so much attention, and those kids are going to put up points, and they're going to get to play in roles that uh, are, probably wouldn't have been suited for them if they were on a different team like last year's team or that 2015 program team. And there will be some steep progression in some of those players just because they're getting power play time, and and you might see a player like a Luke Tuck or uh, Thomas Bordalo kind of establish themselves as as first round prospects. And and certainly, I know several scouts already see them as that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I just think you're, you're looking at it, even if that does happen, you're looking at those guys going in kind of the 20 to 25 range. And 
even that, even to not have a guy go in this sort of top 15 is a huge sort of not step back because they'll be right back at it next year and they've got four or five elite kids for the 2021 draft. But uh, it's certainly a disappointing year for, for USA Hockey, I would think. I like that there's an Alex Laferriere in the USHL. Yes. <laughs> and on. he's flown under the radar. That kid is a player. He's having is an he? unbelievable year in the USHL. All right. Well, we'll keep, maybe somebody will think they've got the wrong guy and take a reach on him. <laughs> That's great. All right. So, so looking in the second half of your first round, let's say in the fifteen to thirty range, which guy, which guy should has the potential to be a riser? Ooh, um, that's a tough one. I, I think. There are a few players in the queue that, that really come to mind. I love Maverick Bork. I, I think he's an absolutely outstanding player, and he's also a center. He's another one of those kids who's a center in a draft that doesn't have a ton of centers. Connor Zari is another kid that fits that mold as well. He's led the WHL in scoring for most of the year, uh, and he's a center. The thing with Zari is, again, he's he's kind of in that left Frenier mold where he was a few days away from being eligible for last year's draft, so part of the reason that he's having so much success in the WHL this season is because he's so much older than some of these other kids. But I think you'd have to look at the centers as the potential risers. You'd have to look at a kid from the Sioux like Yermir Pitlick, uh, who is six foot three and plays the position that everybody covets and has enough talent to be a potential second line center. And I think even if he doesn't have this sort of elite upside that a lot of the smaller kids in this draft have, you could see a player like Pitlick go much higher than he than maybe I expect him to go just because you don't find six foot three centers with a lot of talent all that often. Um, the other thing that I would say in terms of risers and fallers is that I have a lot of kids in the top of my draft ranking who are really tiny. Yeah, I, I noticed that. Just just based off of, of what we know about the way that NHL teams still draft and as much as they are drafting smaller than they ever have before. I still think there is a market inefficiency there. So I think there are a lot of players who could slip a lot like a Cole Caulfield did for me last year and a Debrinkit kind of thing. I think you could see players like Casper Simon Tyvel or Zion Niebeck, who is five foot eight on a good day, um, slip into kind of the, the end of the first round, beginning of the second round, and you could have some potential stars available later in the draft. So I think that's another thing to follow just because there are a lot of really, really talented players in this draft who are just two inches smaller than a lot of teams would prefer. Even yeah. a defender like Emil Andre out of Sweden is five foot nine, and as good as he is, and as much as I'm sure teams love his skill set, I think teams still struggle in uh, in drafting defensemen who are five foot nine. So that that's another thing to keep an eye on in this draft is is you're going to have some darn good players who are maybe five foot eight, five foot nine, five foot ten who maybe slip a little bit further than you'd expect. Um, the player that I am probably most fascinated by in this in this list is the Russian goalie Yaroslav. Mm. Is it Askarov? Is that how you say it? Askarov, yeah. So I yeah. So I was in Sweden last year writing. I was behind the scenes with the American, the U18 team, to write about their their cruising to a gold medal and with the best team ever assembled. And then this this kid, they play Russia, of course, and lose. And this <laughs> goalie was unbelievable. I didn't, I you know, again don't know, you know, I'd never heard of him. Walk in and was like, holy cow! And Corey Prime was there, and he's like, yeah, that's that guy's going to be probably the highest drafted goalie we've seen in a while. Mm-hmm. Um, you have him at twelve. Is is that a reflection? What's your instinct say, knowing how teams are don't necessarily want to draft a goalie in round one? Where do you think he ends up going? I see. I still think he'll end up going higher than than where I presently have him. And okay. and I would listen to an argument. I have a tier from five to twelve that where I think a lot of those guys are pretty tight. So I would listen to arguments that he's the fifth or sixth or seventh best prospect in this draft. And I honestly don't think it's out of the question for him to become a top ten pick in this draft. I think if the circumstances are right and and if there is this sort of a team that needs a goalie prospect or a team that has a hole there positionally like we saw last year with Spencer Knight going to Florida maybe a little bit higher than I would have drafted him um, 
I think there is a chance that that happens. The reason I have him at 12 more than anything is just an overall hesitancy, even in a goalie like Askarov, who is clearly the best goalie we've seen uh, probably since Vasilevsky and maybe even since before Vasilevsky. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it, it's it's tough. He's You're taking a huge risk anytime you draft a goalie that high, but I really do believe that he has enough of a track record now and the style of play that he plays is one that teams covet. And by that, I mean, he is extremely explosive and athletic, but not in the sort of Jonathan Quick, Marc-Andre Fleury kind of way where they can get caught swimming sometimes. Yeah. Uh, more in the Braden Holtby kind of way where Holtby is, you know, he's an athlete, but he's very controlled in his net. And for an 18-year-old goalie to have that kind of control when you're such a freak athlete, I mean, that just doesn't happen with goalies. And I find goalies extremely hard to evaluate. I think it's probably extremely hard to evaluate for anyone unless you've played the position or unless you've been in the game and and sort of really worked with the position, which I obviously haven't. Uh, But Askarov just strikes me as one of those kids who, A, has the numbers to support him. He's got three, four years now of being an elite goalie at his age group and dominating the international scene, as you mentioned. And he's also sort of now playing pro hockey above his age group for a young goalie, which almost never happens in Russia. So he's just one of those kids where I would not be surprised, honestly, if there's a team that has a hole at, at, at that position and, and wants a starting goalie for three years, to two or three years down the line, if they take the leap of faith on him at sixth, seventh, eighth overall. Hmm. What's the highest you'd take a goalie if you're running a draft? Oh, I think it's tough. When I look back at at that Marc Andre Fleury draft or the Carey Price draft, the last time we truly saw a goalie be a top five pick, I don't think those were huge mistakes. And yeah. uh, even the Carey Price pick at the time was frowned upon, quite frankly, and people were a little shocked that he went where he did. Um, so I, I don't know. It's tough. I, I tend to believe that you should not be drafting goalies almost ever in the first round. I thought that Spencer Knight should have been a late first round pick at best last year yeah. rather than a top 15 pick. Um, and, and that's not to say that Spencer Knight doesn't become a starting goalie. I just think there's so much year to year sway and, and we really don't know what goalies are oftentimes until they're they're 22, 23 years old, and we so often see kids who are just freakishly big, six foot five, six foot six, who kind of figure it out, even though they were late round picks. So, uh, I, I tend to just think you should take a couple flyers late in the draft on the, on those kinds of guys, and eventually you will hit, and you will end up with a starting goalie if you go that route. Uh, but players like Askarov are really exceptions to that rule for me, I, and it's hard to say how high I would be willing to take him. Uh, I think if all things are equal on draft day a few months from now and Cole Perfetti is available at fifth overall or Jamie Drysdale is available or Alexander Holtz is available, I'm I'm almost certainly not taking Yaroslav Askarov no matter which team I am or how bad my need might be at goalie. But I can certainly understand that train of thought and, and going down that route with a player like him where even, even if there isn't certainty in goalies, he's the closest thing to it. All right. Awesome. Let's wrap this up with something I'd like to do if, if, if we have a piece that we're referring to. I'm going to go into the comments section and give the subscribers here because they, they, they tend to ask better questions than I do anyways and ask a couple of these. And, you, and you're always, you're one of the best at already answering some of these. You already have dived in. And so I, I, and I appreciate that, that you do that. That's great. Um, but let's, let's ask a couple. This first one, and we touched on this from Benjamin M. says, Scott, who do you like more as a prospect, Hughes or Alexi? I've always leaned a, a, a slight preference on Alexia. I think it'll be close. Um, I think certainly that Hughes has more of an ability to break open a game and more of an ability on the power play to be a truly sort of dominant power play player in the league. And I do think that three or four years from now, you're going to look at Hughes and say that kid is, if not the best power play thread on the league, one of the top two or three threats with the man advantage. And that's something that will be a major advantage for him over a player like Lafreniere. But I do think that Lafreniere is going to end up being the better even strength player. And ultimately that's where the game is played and decided. And I think Lafreniere, despite the fact that Hughes is a center, I would probably give him the slight edge at this point. All right. Good. This question comes from Spencer K, who, which I can only assume is Spencer Knight. I'm sure he's still following the draft <laughs> in, in, in your coverage. Are Drysdale and Byram alike, style or skill? So we're talking about Jamie Drysdale and Bowen Byram, I'm assuming here. Do you see any similarities there? Uh, yeah, I would 
I would say that they're actually quite different. There's not a lot of okay. similarity in their game. Bowen Byram is so good because he plays on instincts and he's such a freak athlete and he can get up and down the ice and make plays and he takes a lot of risks and he activates often as a shooter to, to get to his spot and try and score goals as a defenseman. Drysdale's a little bit more of a cerebral player. He lets the game come to him a little bit more. Uh, he's a, a little bit of a smoother skater, I would say, despite having a size disadvantage to Byram, that he's a better defender at the same age. Um, so I just think Drysdale plays a calmer, sort of more complete game than Byram. But Byram has that, again, it's a kind of a, a very much a Hughes-Lafreniere thing where I think Drysdale's the more well-rounded player. But I think Byram has that ability, like Hughes does, to, to make a play in an instant. Okay. Um, again, to Askarov, because I am fascinated by him, this question comes from Paul S. If you had to compare Askarov to an NHL goalie, do you have a name, and could you explain your thoughts on the comparison? Now, do you are you a guy who hates uh, comparisons with NHL players? Absolutely, I am. Okay. Uh, so you <laughs> no, that's okay. Skip we this can one. still we go can down that awful like rabbit hole. <laughs> no, I love comparisons. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and I, I, I totally understand why people crave them. I just think that... Uh, I mean, this is a, a, a question for a different kind of podcast, but I think the problem with comparisons is that it pigeonholes players, and we rarely yeah. ever see low, low of the line, low end of the lineup kind of guys used as comparisons. And ultimately, right. every big center becomes Joe Thornton or Ryan Getzlaff, and <laughs> every small scorer becomes Alex Dabrinkit, and every slick kid like Jack Hughes becomes Patrick Kane. And I think that just sets a lot of kids up to fail. Not uh, only that, Scott, it's, and I've been saying this for years, it, it, it's not only is it Patrick Kane, then they add one ever extra attribute. So they'll be like, yeah, he's Patrick Kane, only he's better defensively. And you're like, oh, wow. So, he's a, <laughs> you know, he's, he's the best, one of the best uh, players in this country, um, but we're also improving him. So, like, not only are you comparing him to great players, typically, it's, it's then you tack on, like, two or three extras. Yeah, and for a long time, the one that always got me was every single draft class had a Jeff Carter. Every single draft <laughs> class had a kid who was a little bit lengthy, but didn't have a ton of strength, but could really wheel up and down the boards, and he became Jeff Carter. Or how many times have we heard a kid referred to as, as Milan Lucic, that big power oh forward gosh. that every team wants, the, the prime Lucic of the day? Tom Wilson, um, that so was yeah, all you heard. And then the kid uh, Florida yeah. took, uh, Lawson Kraus. That was... Mm-hmm. Now, now the one is Dabrinkit. I think that's the one we're going to hear like ad nauseum. Like anybody who's s- small and can score is going to be the next Dabrinkit. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But anyway, so yeah, can you go ahead and make a comparison to the Russian goal? Yeah, <laughs> I, I kind of touched on it um, with Askarov yeah. in terms of, I think Braden Holtby is a, a good comparison. Braden Holtby, what always impressed me about Holtby was that he did have the athleticism of a, of a Jonathan Quick or a Marc-Andre Fleury, but he never really let it uh, sort of take take the better of him. He never really overcompensated when he was sort of pushing to the top of the crease. I think, I mean, Marc-Andre Fleury and Jonathan Quick have made brilliant careers of, of kind of swimming in their net a little bit. But what has always impressed me about Askarov is just that he, he's very controlled while also sort of having that explosiveness and, and being able to go post to post to wow you with a brilliant save and uh, I think that's what often separates good goalies from, or great goalies from good goalies, I should say. And I think Askarov has that quality. So Holtby certainly comes to mind in that kind of a way. Tuka Rask has that a little bit. I don't, yeah. I don't think Rask is quite the athlete that that a Flurry or a Holtby or a Quick are, but Rask certainly has that ability to to sort of stay within his means and to calm himself down in the net when he's when he gets swimming and so Holtby and Rask would would maybe be my comparisons but again if Askarov has a has a career anything like Tuka Rask or Braden Holtby then he absolutely deserves to be a top 10 pick but you're certainly putting some pretty lofty expectations on him by comparing him to those two guys well I mean if you're but if you're taking him that's what you he needs to be basically Yes, you know what I mean. Definitely, like he better be Braden Holtby. Um, all right, last one. This comes from Aiden S. and says, "Hey Scott, I know part of what, and we talked about this, but I, it's I want to see if we can pigeonhole it. I know part of what sets Lafreniere apart is his complete game. But what would you say his best asset is? So you you know you talked about he does a little bit of everything. What elements of his game are really elite? Is there one part that you like the best? 
I would always come back to his puck protection skill. He okay. is just strong. Like he's 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 in that Sidney Crosby mold where he's got that low center of gravity. And again, I'm not comparing him to Sidney Crosby, but he he's in <laughs> that better. mold where his biggest <laughs> skill is just his ability to hang on to the puck and to make a play from that kind of a position and to to sort of come away from board battles with control and not to get knocked off the puck and pushed around. And I think that makes him extremely unique as a winger it, more and more those players are centers the the big strong players who can make plays are, often end up at centers and more and more we're seeing players like a lucas raymond in this draft class um who, who, or a mitch marner etc etc and the top end wingers in the in the league tend to be those perimeter players who can sort of wow you with the play and mm-hmm. uh, i i really do always come back to to lafreniere's ability to protect the puck and and sort of be a dominant possession player and just always have the puck on his stick and uh if you can't get the puck off of him and then you've also got talent as a shooter or a playmaker or a passer um you put those things together with puck protection skill and that's a that's a really exciting package so i think just his ability to to hang on to the puck and to make plays as a a sort of puck protection monster, whether that's just sort of cutting through traffic or off the cycle, uh, it, it makes him a, a threat in a lot of different areas in the offensive zone. Awesome. Well, great job with this list. I can't wait to see the subsequent list. When do you do, do your follow-up? When do you come back and do the same thing? So I'll have the mid-season list in February and then my okay. final top 100 in May. So I do three three in-season rankings. So you'll have to wait until February for the next one. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, we'll get you back on here. Thanks for doing this. Uh, you can follow Scott on Twitter, at Scott C. Wheeler. He will be joining Corey Promen in our uh, prospect coverage all season long and joining this podcast. So I'm really excited about doing this. It's, it was a lot of fun, Scott. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Craig. A ton of fun. I want to thank Scott Wheeler for being the first guest on the prospect series. First of two. It's going to be him or Corey Promen. That's it. I think, unless you guys really love it and we decide to branch out. But for now, we will be alternating. Corey Promen will be up in December. I'm excited for that. It's always great to have Corey on the podcast. If you liked this format, if you liked the prospect talk, let me know in the reviews at Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you listen to this. Leave a review, leave a comment, let me know what you liked, if you have any suggestions for future episodes. If you hated it, um, then just keep that to yourself. No, you can let me know on Twitter, and I would love feedback. Honest, if you're not a fan of this format or whatever, let me know on Twitter, and um, I, you know, we can have a conversation about it. Um, but either way, I, I would love to hear from you. Also looking forward to Thursday's full edition of the Full 60. I have a, I'm really excited about the guests that I have tentatively lined up. And I'm just trying to hammer down some times that work for both of us. If it happens, this, this will be... Um, I'm, I'm super excited about it and, and for a lot of reasons. And you'll find out on Thursday. If it doesn't happen... Um, I mean, you'll never know. I'll just act like I'm super excited about the person that I got to be the guest, as I tend to be. So thank you so much for listening. Thanks to Scott Wheeler for joining this fun bonus prospect series episode. And enjoy your week.